A study done by a pair of Canadian psychologists revealed something fascinating about people at the racetrack. Just after placing their bets, they are much more confident of their horse's chances of winning than they are immediately before laying down those bets. Of course, nothing about the horse's chances actually shifts. It's the same horse, on the same track, in the same field. But in the minds of those bettors, its possibilities improve tremendously once that ticket is purchased. Although it seems a bit puzzling at first glance, the reason for the dramatic change has to do with the next principle of instant influence I want to talk about. Like the other principles, this one lies deep within us, directing our actions with quiet power. It is, quite simply, our relentless desire to be and to appear to be consistent with what we have already done. And there's good reason for it. In most circumstances, consistency is admirable. Inconsistency is commonly thought to be an undesirable personality trait in our society. The woman who changes her mind again and again is considered flighty or scatterbrained. The man whose opinions can be easily influenced is viewed as indecisive and weak-willed, a waffler or a wimp. The person whose beliefs, words, and deeds don't match is seen as confused, two-faced, or even mentally ill. On the other side, a high degree of consistency is normally associated with personal and intellectual strength. It's at the heart of logic, rationality, stability, and honesty. Certainly, then, good personal consistency is highly valued in our culture, and well it should be. It provides us with a reasonable and effective orientation to the world. Most of the time, we'll be better off if our approach to things is well-laced with consistency. Without it, our lives would be difficult, erratic, and disjointed. But because it is typically in our best interest to be consistent, we can fall into the habit of being automatically consistent, even in situations where it's not the sensible way to be. When it occurs unthinkingly, consistency can be a trap, causing us to persist in behavior patterns that no longer fit the situation. It can prevent us from recognizing that conditions have changed, conditions that require new choices and new approaches. Here's what I'd suggest to make sure that you avoid the pitfalls of mindless consistency. Go to your desk calendar and block out one hour in every month of the year. Then, when that day and hour occur, use it for nothing but a review of the wisdom of staying true to the important choices you've made on the job in the past. Consider your current direction, Consider who you rely on for vital information. Consider who you choose to delegate responsibilities to. And ask yourself whether those prior decisions are still the same ones you would make given the conditions that apply right now. You'd be surprised how often you might find yourself making necessary changes or adjustments that you hadn't realized were necessary until you took the time to challenge the appeal of flying on automatic pilot. Of course, besides knowing how to avoid the trap of consistency, we also want to know how to harness the force of the principle for positive influence. Once we realize the power of consistency in directing our actions, an important practical question immediately comes up. How is that power engaged? 
What is it that triggers the drive for consistency in people? Social psychologists think they know the answer. Commitment. If I can get you to make a commitment, that is, to take a stand and go on record, you will experience a pressure to think, speak, and act consistently with that commitment in the future. The interesting thing is how small these initial commitments can be and yet still change the course of later behavior. For instance, one set of researchers in the city of Toronto went to certain neighborhoods, randomly selected certain houses, and asked the homeowners to accept and wear a small lapel pin supporting the local cancer society. The requested behavior was so trivial that virtually everyone who was asked agreed and put on the pin. But the impact of that little commitment was not trivial at all. Later on, when the Cancer Society actually began its annual charity drive by going door-to-door -door seeking donations, the researchers examined the records to see which households gave a contribution. What they found was pretty remarkable. While less than half of the homeowners who did not receive a pin gave something, three-quarters of all those who did take and wear a pin made a donation. Now, almost everyone was favorable toward the Cancer Society. You can tell that from the fact that virtually everybody who was asked to wear a pin agreed to wear it. But it was only these people who wound up actively committing themselves in this small way who were then likely to follow through with a contribution. The people who were not asked to make a small commitment to their favorable attitude to the Cancer Society, who were not asked to wear a pin, we're far less likely to contribute. For me, this represents an absolutely invaluable lesson about the psychology of influence. Just having or getting others feeling positive toward your idea or product or service is not enough. To get favorable action, you have to commit them to that favorable attitude. Before I learned that simple but crucial lesson, I used to make a common and classic mistake of influence agents. I remember one time in particular when I was trying to convince a colleague of mine at the university to teach his classes in a new way that would benefit the students more. After spending some time with him on the topic, I was sure I had been successful. All the signs told me so. And he really sat up and took notice when I showed him how much higher my students had evaluated my classes after I switched to the new approach. Through it all, he had been nodding his head as I set forth my case, and by the end of things, I was certain that I had won him over and that he would change his teaching methods. But I was wrong. He never changed his behavior. I recall being quite puzzled at the time, wondering how I could have misread the evidence of change so totally. But now, I think that I didn't misread the evidence after all. What I did misread, though, was the nature of the change I had produced. I assumed that it was lasting rather than temporary. It's easy to forget that when left to its own devices, change is rarely a permanent thing. And because I had done nothing to solidify the shift my colleague had made to root it firmly in his view of things, the change simply evaporated with the passage of time. And with it, 
went any chance that my persuasive efforts would affect his future actions. How about you? Ever been confident that you have persuaded a co-worker or a subordinate that a change of ways was necessary, only to find a short time later that after an initial period of improvement, the person had reverted back to the old habits and seemed no different than before? Or have you ever had the experience of being willing to bet that you had made a sale, only to call back at an appointed time for the order to find that in the meantime, the progress you had made had dissipated and the customer was no longer in a buying mood? These are precisely the kinds of things that will happen when we fail to use the process of psychological commitment to cement the change we have created. It's only when people feel psychologically committed to a change that the change is likely to influence their future actions in a continuing and persistent way. So, the practical question that we must face then becomes this. Working as a sleuth of influence would, what can we do to win the kinds of commitments that lead to lasting change? For the answer, we can once again look to the research evidence, where the latest findings tell us that commitments will be most effective in producing consistent future responses when they possess three major features when they are active, when they are public, and when they are voluntary. Let's look at those features one by one. Individuals are much more likely to behave in accord with an initial commitment when, in the process of making that commitment, they have been active. That is, they have spoken or written or acted. This is the reason why, when we think we have successfully changed somebody's mind, we should not be content to let that change reside only in the other person's mind. Instead, we should arrange for that person to take concrete steps to solidify the commitment. That can be done in a variety of ways. We could ask the individual to describe the change and its implications in a memo to us, or we could ask the individual to write down a set of goals based on the change. As a commitment strengthening device, having people make written statements has some great advantages. For one, written declarations provide undeniable physical evidence that the act occurred. Once people have set down a commitment on paper, it becomes very difficult for them to believe that they haven't made the commitment after all. The opportunities to forget or deny that a stand was truly taken are no longer available. There it is in their own handwriting, a written document pressing them to be consistent with what they obviously committed themselves to do. As a rule, then, people live up to what they have written down. This rule applies across the board. If you have customers who say they love something about your product, don't bungle away the opportunity to ask them to write a little testimonial letter to that effect. They'll come to love your product even more as a result. And if you want to motivate yourself by setting performance goals, don't forget to use the leverage that writing down those goals can provide. Written statements can be made public. Because of a desire to appear consistent, a person is more likely to stay loyal to a commitment the more people are aware of it. So make sure that when you set goals for yourself 
or when you ask others to set goals for themselves, that you don't bungle away the effect that making the commitment public can have. Okay, we've seen the kind of power that's available to us in the use of active public commitments. Now, let's talk about the final feature of a commitment that gives it the ability to direct further behavior. The commitment must be voluntary. If it's forced, if it's coerced, if it's pressured from the outside, it's not going to be effective. As Samuel Butler wrote more than 300 years ago, he who complies against his will is of the same opinion still. As far as I'm concerned, that sentiment is as true today as it was on the day it was written. More than any other factor, the thing that determines whether a person's decision at time one will produce consistent responses at time two is the extent to which the person takes personal possession of the earlier decision, takes inner responsibility for it. Think about your own behavior in a situation such as this. Let's say the company you work for sends out a memo to all the employees asking for 100% participation in a fund drive for some particular charity the firm is associated with. You see this kind of thing all the time, especially in larger companies. Now let's also assume that your boss is on the company committee that's spearheading the drive. He comes to you and pressures you into signing a pledge card which says that you will make a donation. Now, you're not interested in contributing to this particular charity. Maybe you've got your own charity to give to. Maybe you don't find your boss's charity especially worthwhile. Whatever the reason, you don't want to be part of this particular fund drive. But your boss pressures you into signing the pledge. You know, however, that your boss will never find out if you follow through on the pledge by actually making the donation. He might eventually learn that only 85% or so of the pledges resulted in donations, but he won't find out specifically who followed through and who didn't. So what do you eventually do? If you're like me, the fact that you took an active public stand by signing the pledge card wouldn't mean a thing. If I felt that my decision to make the pledge wasn't truly my own, but had been pushed on me from the outside, I wouldn't experience any pressure to live up to it later. In fact, I'd probably resent the whole process so much that I'd never contribute to that charity in the future either. That's why it's so important when we're trying to get somebody to take a first step in our direction to make sure that the step is a voluntary one. If it's not, there will be no momentum to that step to make continued movement in our direction likely. As I see it, that's pretty much the legacy of commitments that are smuggled in from the outside. Although they may work for a short time, people who feel pressured or tricked or trapped into taking a position simply don't feel personally bound to the position and consequently are likely to abandon it at first chance. What's more, they can easily come to feel a bitterness toward the position and toward the person who pushed them into it. So, if, as usual, the smuggler's route isn't the way to go, what can we do? I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear me say that we should take the sleuth's approach of looking within our influence targets for those existing commitments, the beliefs, the attitudes, the values, the behavior patterns, 
that are already consistent with the direction we would like them to move. Once we've sought out and uncovered those existing commitments, we can raise them to the surface by arranging for individuals to take active public stands on what they truly value. Then, if we can honestly point out how our product, our service, or our idea is consistent with their personal and now clearly visible commitments, the consistency principle will take over and move them to us. And not only will we benefit, but so will they, because they will be moving in a direction that is in keeping with what they genuinely want and prefer. The best thing about taking the detective's approach is that we don't have to worry about the guy bailing out on the commitments. They're his. They come from the inside. He took personal possession of them a long time ago. That's why showing him how what we have to offer is congruent with his commitments can be such a powerful instrument for immediate and persisting change in our direction. By accident, I saw just how effectively existing commitments can be used to produce beneficial change. I had been asked by the administration of a local hospital to help motivate stroke patients to do their exercise program faithfully after they left the hospital. If you remember our earlier discussion, one of the things we did was to use the credibility principle by having the therapy staff put up all their diplomas, certificates, and awards. But another thing we tried to use was the consensus principle the influence that comes from observing the actions of similar others. After talking to a number of the patients, we found that they all believed in the wisdom of doing their exercises. It was just that when they got home, it was difficult to motivate themselves to do them. So, we decided that we would ask some of these former patients to appear on videotape stating their true beliefs that regular home exercise was important and valuable for recovery. We also asked hospital staff members, nurses, therapists, and a couple of doctors to make a similar set of tapes. Then, when new stroke patients were about to leave the hospital to go home, we showed them either the staff tapes or the patient tapes, figuring that the most effective information for the new patients would be that which came from an array of similar others. And we were right. When we measured the improvements of the various patients, we found that those who saw the tapes made by former stroke patients were more likely to have stayed with their exercise program after they went home than were the patients who saw the tapes made by the staff members. But here's what surprised us. You know which patients showed the greatest improvements? Those who made the tapes for us. Why? Because by making a tape for us, they had also made an active, public, voluntary commitment to regular home exercise. And by George, they were going to live up to it. Can you see why I said earlier that I was so high on the idea of gathering and using as many testimonials as possible to your product or idea in the business world? A genuine testimonial in your behalf has double-barreled impact. Not only will it strengthen your case with similar influence targets, it will strengthen your case even further with the person who made the testimonial, who will have taken an active, public, 
voluntary stand on the quality of what you have to offer and who, as a result, will be more likely than before to want to stay in your corner. Finding and publicizing genuine testimonials. If there's a simpler and more powerful technique of instant influence, I can't think of it. Who was that on the phone, hon? Oh, just Janice. Well, what'd she want? She's throwing a Tupperware party at her house next Friday night, and she wants me to come. You didn't accept, did you? Well, yes, I did. Wait a minute. Didn't we decide that we wanted to save Friday nights for going to the movies? Yes, we did, but I just... And didn't you tell me that you didn't like going to Tupperware parties anymore because you got all the containers you need that go when you press on them? And even if you didn't, you could get them cheaper at the store? Yes, but I just and, thought And that didn't Janice just move all the way across town so that it'll take you 40 minutes to get there and back? Yes, but what could I do? I like Janice. She's a friend. I'm sure it will come as no surprise to you to learn that scientific research has demonstrated over and over that people are substantially more willing to say yes to someone they know and like. The little vignette we just heard shows how this universal principle of human behavior works in one of the most effective compliance settings I know, the Tupperware home party. The power of the Tupperware party comes from a particular arrangement that trades on the friendship liking rule. Despite the entertaining and persuasive salesmanship of the Tupperware representative at the party, the true request to purchase the product does not come from this stranger. It comes from a friend to everyone in the room. The Tupperware representative may physically ask for each party-goer's order all right, but the more psychologically compelling requester is a woman sitting off to the side, smiling, chatting, and serving refreshments. She is the party hostess, who has called her friends together for the demonstration in her home, and who, everyone understands, makes a profit from each piece sold at her party. Simple. By providing the hostess with a percentage of the take, the Tupperware company arranges for their customers to buy from and for a friend rather than an unknown salesperson. In this way, the attraction, the warmth, the security, and the obligation of liking and friendship are brought to bear on the sales setting. The results have been remarkable. Of course, all sorts of other influence professionals recognize the pressure to say yes to someone we know and like. Take, for instance, the large number of charity organizations who recruit volunteers to canvas for donations close to their homes. They understand perfectly how much more difficult it is for us to turn down a charity request when it comes from a friend or neighbor. Most of us, however, have to try to engage the principle of liking in a different way. Before making a request, we have to get our influence target to like us. Notice, once again, that the crucial step is what happens before the request is made. Just as establishing an initial context of credibility, or scarcity, or consensus, or commitment changes the way people respond to a request, establishing a context of liking has the very same effect. I was once approached for advice by a friend who was anxious about an upcoming IRS audit. Even though he hadn't done anything wrong in filling out his tax return, he was worried because he hadn't kept the best of records to document his expenses and deductions. Now, I knew him to be an honest guy, 
with several likable qualities. He was a very fair and generous person. The problem was that the IRS auditor he would be meeting didn't know that. So we formulated a plan to make those traits visible at the start of his audit session. I remembered that he had once told me that every year since his divorce, he had been voluntarily adding an amount of money to his monthly child support payments to his kids because, as he put it, inflation hits them too. Figuring that this kind of evidence of his inherent integrity and fair-mindedness would be an invaluable point to make in the early stages of the audit, I advised him to start the session by documenting that he was indeed entitled to the deductions he was claiming for his kids. Once in the process, it would naturally come out that he had been sending them more money than he was required by the divorce decree. That would establish the liking context that would serve him well when he got to the more difficult areas of the audit. He called me following his session, nearly giddy with the news that the plan had worked like a charm. He said that the initial coolness of the auditor, who turned out to be a woman, melted immediately after she compared the amount specified on his decree with the amount of his child support checks. From that point on, she breezed through the rest of his records, giving him the benefit of the doubt whenever things got sticky. Once more, we can see that it's what you do first that critically affects how people respond to what you present to them later. Some of the best evidence I know for the importance of establishing liking first comes from the story of a man in Detroit, Joe Girard, who specialized in using the liking rule to sell Chevrolets. Every year, for 11 straight years, he won the title of the country's number one car salesman, averaging over five cars and trucks sold every day he worked. For all his success, the formula he employed was surprisingly simple. It consisted of offering people just two things, a fair price and someone they liked to buy the car from. And that's it, he claimed in a radio interview I once heard. Finding the salesman you like, plus the price, put them both together, and you get a deal. Well, fine. The Joe Girard formula tells us how vital the liking rule is to the influence process, but it doesn't tell us nearly enough. For one thing, it doesn't tell us why customers liked him more than some other salesperson who offered a fair price. There's a crucial and fascinating question that Joe's formula leaves unanswered. Just what are the factors that cause one person to like another person? If we had that answer, we would be a lot closer to understanding how people such as Joe can so successfully arrange to have us like them and as well how we might successfully arrange to have others like us. Fortunately, Social scientists have been asking the question for decades, and their studies have allowed them to identify a number of factors that forcefully and reliably cause liking. From my perspective, three of these factors are most important for an agent of influence to know about. The three factors are similarity, praise, and cooperation. Let's examine how they work one at a time, beginning with similarity. We like people who are like us. And this fact seems to hold true whether the similarity occurs in the area of opinions, personality traits, 
background, or lifestyle. We can see the proof all around us. On the athletic field, people root for players who share some characteristic with them, like place of birth. In the courtroom, defendants are given more sympathetic treatment from jurors of the same racial or ethnic background. And in the romantic arena, individuals are more likely to feel affection for partners who hold similar attitudes and beliefs. Well, if similarity leads to liking and influence in these areas, you can bet the same holds true in the business world. Insurance company records show that prospects are more likely to buy insurance when the salesperson is like them in age, religion, politics, and even cigarette smoking habits. Many sales training programs teach trainees to connect with the backgrounds and interests of their customers. Automobile salespeople, for example, are often trained to look for evidence of these things while examining a customer's trade-in. If there's camping gear in the trunk, the salesman might be schooled in how to remark later on that he loves to get away from the city and into the wilderness whenever he can. If there are golf balls on the back seat, he might be taught to mention that he hopes the rain will hold off until he can play the round of golf he had scheduled for later in the day. Personally, I don't have any problems with the use of these kinds of similarities as long as they are genuine. I can't see anything wrong with mentioning similarities that are already there as existing features of the situation and that have merely been uncovered by good detective work. The difficulty comes when the similarities are phony ones that have been smuggled into the situation to exploit their psychological impact on the liking process. So, as usual, the question for the agent of influence becomes, how can I arrange my environment to be able to take advantage of this leverage in the way that a sleuth of influence would? Here's what I'd recommend. Remember earlier in our discussion of authority, I suggested that before attempting to do business with anyone you hope to influence, that you spend some time in informal conversation, a period of time in which information can be exchanged about one another's backgrounds, interests, educational affiliations, and professional associations? At the time, I said that this kind of conversation would allow you to present, in a non-boastful way, evidence of your credentials and expertise that are relevant to the upcoming business discussions. What I didn't say at the time is that I think it also provides the chance to get valuable evidence as well evidence of the other person's personal history, hobbies, and favorite activities. Think of the liking bond that could be forged between you when you discover that you both lived in the same city for a time, or went to the same university, or belonged to the same national fraternity, or run three miles a day in the mornings, or loved to watch professional basketball or amateur gymnastics or, or old Cary Grant movies on TV. This liking bond can be achieved with a prospective client or a recently hired co-worker or even a new boss. The important thing to remember is that the opportunity to establish the context of mutual liking when it will be most beneficial at the beginning of things is too rare to be missed. Okay, now let's talk about the second major factor that affects liking, praise. Not only is it true that we like those who are like us, we also like those who do like us and who say so.
Remember Joe Girard, the world's greatest car salesman, who says that the secret of his success was getting customers to like him? He did something that, on first blush, seems foolish and costly. Each month, he sent every one of his more than 13,000 former customers a holiday greeting card containing a printed message. The holiday greeting changed from month to month, Happy New Year, Happy Valentine's Day, Happy Thanksgiving, and so on. But the message printed inside the card never varied. It read, I like you. There was nothing else on the card, nothing but Joe's name under the statement. I like you. It came in the mail every year, 12 times a year like clockwork. I like you on a printed card that went to 13,000 other people too. Could a statement of liking so impersonal, so obviously designed to sell cars work? Joe Girard thought so, and a man as successful as he was at what he did deserves our attention. Joe understood an important fact about human nature. People are phenomenal suckers for flattery. As a rule, people believe praise and like those who provide it even when it's untrue. For example, in one study done in North Carolina, a flatterer who gave out compliments was liked just as much when the compliments were untrue as when they were true. When seen in this light, the expense of printing and mailing well over 150,000 I like you cards each year seems neither as foolish nor as costly as we might have first thought. Now, because praise can be either sincere or insincere and still work, we find ourselves once again with a smuggler versus sleuth choice to make. Unfortunately, many agents of influence are taught the smuggler's approach in this regard. For instance, while doing research for my book on influence, I infiltrated a sales training program for insurance agents where we were told when we visited a client's home to comment positively on anything that was prominent. Compliment the lawn, compliment the furniture. If a child walks by, compliment the kid. Well, I suppose that kind of approach will work to a degree, but in the process, it will carry two sizable disadvantages. First, it will carry into the job the distasteful aspect of dishonesty. And we've already discussed the harmful effects that can have on a person's self-esteem and enthusiasm for the job. The second disadvantage is one we haven't considered yet. Although manufacturing a false compliment may make the recipient like you more, it will make you bungle away an even more powerful tool of influence, the chance to like the person you are complimenting. Look at it this way. If you take the time and effort to find just one truly praiseworthy thing to say about the person you want to influence, you will be liked more for it. But in addition, you'll gain the added benefit of liking that individual more. And once the people you're dealing with recognize that you like them, something special happens. Down go the defenses. Down go their cautions about whether they can trust what you say. Why? Because everybody knows that we don't take advantage of the people we like.
The same logic applies to real versus fabricated similarities. What you have to remember is that you are susceptible to the same psychological principles as the individuals you're trying to influence. So you're going to like the people in whom you've taken the trouble to locate genuine similarities because people like people who are actually similar to them. And that's going to be true for you too. When I do influence training workshops, I stress the following point. If you smuggle the impact of compliments and similarities into a situation through insincere flattery and fabricated connections, you simultaneously become a smuggler and a bungler of influence. What I recommend instead is that with each person you influence, you sleuth out and comment on at least one real similarity and at least one inherently praiseworthy feature in that individual. Not only will the other person come to like you by virtue of the principles of psychology, you will come to like them by virtue of the same principles. Now, here's the best part. When these folks see that you genuinely like them, they're going to be more trusting and receptive to your influence, and you're going to benefit. What's more, you'll be extra sure not to steer them wrong because these are people you genuinely like and that means they're gonna benefit. The overall result then is the kind of mutually profitable deal that will lead to a long string of profitable deals in the future. Okay, now we're ready to tackle the final major factor that causes liking. Cooperation. Those who see themselves as working together toward the achievement of a common goal are much more favorable and helpful to one another. In fact, the positive power of cooperation can generate liking even among people who start out feeling hostility and dislike for one another. In one study, business executives were separated into two groups and put into situations in which the groups had to compete against one another. They quickly developed intergroup rivalries complete with attitudes of derision, distaste, and disrespect toward members of the other group. Then, the researchers changed one thing about the reward system that the groups worked under. Rather than having to compete against one another to achieve success, the groups had to cooperate to do so. They were given a series of tasks that couldn't be accomplished by either team alone. Instead, the teams had to work together to avoid failure by combining their resources, coordinating their efforts, joining their energies, and agreeing on a workable plan. After they collaborated in this way successfully, a transformation occurred. The negative attitudes toward the opposite group members were replaced with feelings of liking, admiration, and unity. The researchers were able to trace this remarkable turnabout to the moment when the executives had to view one another, even their former opponents, as allies. It was the prominence of common goals and the cooperation required to achieve those goals that finally allowed the one-time rivals to see one another as teammates and friends. As agents of influence, we can certainly take a lesson from the results of that study. For example, good service for a customer often involves creating a climate in which the customer perceives that the two of you have a common goal, the customer's complete satisfaction with your product, and that you are continually working 
together to reach it. In companies and corporations, certain groups or departments often seem to be regularly in conflict with one another because of the differing functions they perform. For example, research versus development or marketing versus manufacturing. Under these circumstances, it's vital for leaders to take steps to introduce or emphasize in everyone's mind the view of the departments as cooperating partners working toward a larger mutual goal, the success of the overall organization, a goal that is beneficial to everyone. You know, I think there's a kind of irony associated with the components of liking that we've just covered. The factors of similarity, praise, and cooperation are so obvious, so simple, that a lot of times we forget to use them. We fumble them away because our heads are elsewhere, developing some detail or calculating some percentage point of some minor feature of whatever it is we are presenting to the people we want to influence. And in the process, we forget to pay attention to the fundamentals of influence, like establishing a context of liking through the three factors of sincerity, praise, and cooperation. Let's take a look at a customer service situation and at how easy it is for one individual to bungle away the chance to use those three factors and how easy it is for another individual in the same setting to reverse the error and save the day by going back to the fundamentals. The scene is the service counter of a health club as a member approaches and speaks to one of the two staffers behind it. Uh, sorry to bother you. I just locked my car keys in the trunk of my car and my wallet's inside. I don't even have a quarter on me to use the payphone outside to call my wife and, and have her bring my extra set of keys down here. I need to use your phone back behind the counter there. Oh, sorry. It's against our policy. Uh, maybe you don't understand. I've been a member here for three years now. I've locked myself out of my car, and I don't have the money to make a call to get my keys. You mean you're not going to let me use your phone? Maybe you don't understand, sir. It's definitely against club policy to make personal calls on this phone. I just got a lecture on it last week from my manager because I let another member use it. Sorry. Uh, I... Just a minute, Kathy. Maybe there's something we can do for Mr. Jones here. Heck, I've locked myself out of my own car a few times. Which one is your car, Mr. Jones? The Green Jaguar. Oh, you're the one who owns that new Jaguar? That's a great-looking car. I've always admired it out in the parking lot. Thanks. I love it so far. What's your name, by the way? Alan. I'm glad you like my car, Alan, but what about my phone call? Well, look, we're all part of the same club. We all want it to be run well and for you to be happy with it. So, uh, why don't we do this? Kathy, have you got a quarter in your purse? Why don't you lend it to Mr. Jones, and when he makes his call and gets his wallet, he can pay you back. Sure, I'd be glad to help out that way. Let's see, uh, here you go, Mr. Jones. Thanks, I really appreciate it. I'll mention to the manager how you helped me out. I'd like you to notice something about the conversation we just heard. Until Alan intervened, the exchange was going straight downhill. A longtime club member, Mr. Jones, who had a relatively small problem, had encountered a club employee, Kathy, who felt uncomfortable breaking club rules to help him. You could just feel the conflict snowballing. Mr. Jones was becoming increasingly impatient and angry with Kathy's offhanded, unsympathetic response to his predicament. 
while Kathy was becoming increasingly defensive and rigid about the need to reject his request because of club policy. That was because neither of them thought of the other's problem as a joint problem. Because both people were feeling annoyed and stressed by the conflict, neither wanted to take the time to like one another or to adopt an attitude of cooperation that would take into account the differing needs of two members of the same organization. Notice, too, that when Alan entered the conversation, it was from the calm of the sidelines. Having not been caught up in the escalating emotions of the exchange, he was able to think more flexibly about the situation, to cast a detective's eye on it, and to recognize that the opportunities for liking and cooperation were right there waiting to be used. So first, he made Mr. Jones feel better by announcing an especially relevant similarity between the two of them. Heck, I've locked myself out of my own car a few times. Then, he found an opportunity to introduce a genuine compliment. That's a great-looking car. I've always admired it out in the parking lot. Next, he pointed out that the ultimate goal of all concerned was a common one. We're all part of the same club. We all want it to be run well and for you to be happy with it. Finally, he even arranged for Kathy to lend Mr. Jones a quarter rather than doing so himself. In this way, with Kathy helping Mr. Jones, the two prior antagonists cooperated together successfully which worked to dissolve any bitterness they felt toward one another and which allowed everyone to part on good terms. The last thing I'd like you to notice about Alan's transformation of the situation is that it took almost no time to accomplish. Even though he changed a looming disaster into a resounding success, even though that success was shared by all concerned because Mr. Jones got to make his phone call, the club got a happy customer, and Kathy and Alan got a good word put in to their manager. Even with all that, the whole thing took Alan only a few seconds to pull off. Now, if that sounds like too much to hope for in your own interactions, don't be too sure. After all, we're dealing with the principles of instant influence. So there you have them. Reciprocity, scarcity, authority, consensus, commitment, and consistency and liking. The six universal principles of influence. Practice these principles of influence and you'll notice how much easier it is to ask for and receive approval, cooperation, and compliance in any business situation. When you harness the effective and ethical powers of instant influence, your company, customers, co-workers, and employees will all benefit, and so will your career. If you would like information on any of the other Dartnell Audio products, call us toll-free at 1-800-621-5463.